May be seated. Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I am a member here at Christ the King, um, and I am also a seminary student, and I have the privilege of preaching our last sermon today from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And for those of you who have been coming uh, throughout this time or have spent any time studying Ephesians, we, we know that the letter really focuses a lot on Christians living in this new community. Like, what is the church supposed to look like now? And Paul starts off in chapter 1, and he talks about um, God's sovereign work in gathering a people for himself. And in chapter 2, he moves on, and he speaks about this, this new reconciled society that we have that was accomplished by the death of Christ, the peace that we have with God, and the peace that we have with each other. He then moves on and he exhorts believers to live lives worthy of their calling. And then as we've seen over the last several weeks, he's spoken about proper conduct in the church and in the home and in maybe the workplace and the world. But in today's passage, we come to one of the more well-known sections of Scripture when, when we talk about the armor of God. But Paul wants to bring us back to earth in a way, by reminding us that we do face opposition. Like we, oftentimes we neglect this. We, we forget about it. And, and Paul wants us to know there is a spiritual battle being waged here. And we really need to be ready for it. So let me pray before I read God's word and uh, we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for the opportunity to worship you together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We know in it is all truth, and that it does cut two ways. We thank you that it is the power of salvation for those who believe. And God, we pray for our time this morning. Pray that I would speak your truth rooted in scripture, God, that I would preach it to myself because I need to hear it. I pray for us here that we would all hear your word, that you would be honored and glorified and magnified through it. Lord, this morning, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. So if you all could turn to your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24. It starts with, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. In 2016, there was a poll taken in the United States. It wasn't specific to Christians or non-believers. It was just a poll that was taken in general to the general populace. And the question was, do you believe in God or a universal spirit? And 89% of the people that were asked that in the United States said yes. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that they believe in the God of the Bible, but it shows that almost 9 out of 10 people believe that there is a God or some spirit that rules the universe. Well, in 2013, a different poll was taken, and it was also to the United States, just general to the populace. And, it's, and it asked, do you believe in the existence of a personal devil? And only 57% of the people polled said yes. So we have this 30% difference here between believing in a God and believing in Satan. And I think this really shows our culture's influence with science, with um, medicine, and a naturalistic and evolutionary worldview. As we've progressed in the United States, we've all but driven out any sort of thought that there's a spiritual world because we think we have an explanation for everything that happens. There's a lot of people in third world countries that may talk about spiritual attacks from the enemy, but the only reason they do that is because they're uncivilized and, and they, don't, they aren't educated enough. They don't, um, they don't know all the things that we know in the United States and other countries like ours. That's, that's our cultural thinking. And it's inevitable that cultural thinking is going to influence the church, both good and bad. And although we as Christians, we believe in the existence of Satan, many of us live day to day without even taking the time to even consider that there's an actual spiritual battle going on. We need to be educated, and we need to be informed that it is. There is a way, there's a war being waged for our souls and also to rob our consciences. And Paul wants to remind us, we can't sit back. We can't. We have to be aware. We have to be prepared, and we have to fight courageously. But before entering into our battle, we, we need to know who our adversary is. And in verse 11, Paul says that that is the devil. It's Satan. It's the great deceiver. And again, we, we know about Satan as Christians. We, we talk about Satan. But how many of you all here today actually live like he's a threat to you? Or a threat to your family? Or a threat to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I admit that I greatly struggle with this. I think it's a challenge for us. On the other hand, there's some other people maybe here that maybe you spend a little too much time looking for the devil in the details. 
Maybe you are so concerned with the power of Satan that you've diminished, one, Christ's power in this kingdom because it is his kingdom, and two, you've diminished the fact that we are totally helpless sinners and that we do pretty bad things. So we have to avoid these two extremes. But there may be a few of you all here, and you may think that you know, Paul and the biblical writers, they're probably just superstitious talking about Satan or, or the devil. You know, the, maybe you think that the biblical writers were just kind of playing into their cultural um, times and the thoughts of anytime something was bad and you couldn't be explained, then it has to be some demonic force. But I would, I would argue and I would have you consider that there are spiritual forces going on beyond what we actually see. God created our world with order, and we're able to study it, and we're able to learn things from it, but that doesn't rule out the fact that there is a spiritual realm. And I would ask you all to consider that. Well, to go back to Satan, we want to understand his influence. We need to internalize the truth, first off, that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. He limited his power with the inauguration of his kingdom. Satan and his demons must submit to the authority of Christ. We see this time and time again in the Gospels. However, Satan still has great power in this world. He has power specifically amongst people and also with governing authorities. To stand against the world is to stand against the evil one. He is the ruler of this fallen world. He influences people. He influences leadership in other areas so that they will be hostile to Christ and his church. That's the whole story of Revelation, right? It's, it's Christ warring against Satan. It's the, it's the sinful world battling against the church. But Satan also likes to prey on our sinful nature with temptation. And to fight against our sinful nature is to fight against the one who introduced sin in the garden in Genesis. Look at verse 11. Paul here talks about the schemes of the devil. He's very smart in how he comes to us. He's crafty. He tempts us when we're suffering. He likes to come to us when we're isolated. He likes to come with us when maybe we're grieving. Or he likes to come and approach us when we're very successful. We know he comes as a roaring lion. He comes as a friend sometimes, like he did in the garden. And other times he comes as an angel of light with false teachers. So it's, it's pretty obvious we face a great enemy. But he doesn't work alone. In verse 12, Paul introduces Fallen angels or demons that are also an influence. He calls them rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. And I do want to just take a second to just kind of back up because I know this verse may have a few things in it that could cause you to get sidetracked. I know a lot of times if I hear something, I, I miss the next 10 minutes of the sermon because I'm trying to figure out what it means. Um, well, when, when Paul uses the language of rulers and authorities, usually he's talking about angelic beings, sometimes specifically demons, which he's doing here. 
Other times, like in Titus, he says that we are to submit to the rulers and the authorities, talking about governing authorities. So we have to let our context drive us to our understanding here. So when you see rulers and authorities, I want you to just keep that in mind. Read, your, read the context, and that will help to inform you. But here he's using all of these four terms to describe fallen angels or demons. The other thing that in this verse that may be a little confusing is that Paul talks about these demons being in the heavenly places. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait, how, how are they? Is, that, is Paul saying that they're in heaven? And again, with heavenly places, that language is usually used to refer to as the spiritual world, right? We, we said in the Nicene Creed, those things visible and invisible, like this would be invisible. Now, he does sometimes talk about the heavenly places to refer to heaven, right? Christ was seated with the Father at the heavenly places in Ephesians 1, and we've been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places in Ephesians 2. But with those two things, make sure to not get tripped up with that sort of language because it can be a little confusing, so make sure that you read your context in those areas. But the point that Paul is trying to make in verses 11 and 12, and he does paint a bit of a dire picture, is that we need to be reminded that Satan and his minions, they want to cause disunity. They want to cause division in the church. They pursue Christ and his church, and they want to make God's people ineffective they want to make us feel comfortable. They want to make us feel unaware of their schemes. And we have to stand alert. We have to be vigilant. We need to know who our enemy is and what he wants to do. And in verses 13, 11 and 13, Paul asks the Christian to take up the whole armor of God. Now, there have been some authors who have written 1,500 pages dissecting each of these pieces of armor. And thankfully, I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on them like they did. But it is very important. And what Paul is doing here is he's drawing upon passages in Isaiah that talk about God as our warrior. But he also uses imagery to talk about the complete battle armor of the Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers' battle armor had both offensive and defensive weaponry. And, and the point is, we have to have every part of that to be able to battle against Satan. We need to be fully dressed. We need to be fully prepared for battle. But our most important preparation happens before we even put on the armor. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says we need to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. His point is that prayer undergirds our battles against the enemy, and without it, we may as well just stay out of the battlefield. He says that our prayer, it should be frequent. It should be heartfelt. It should be dependent on the Spirit's guidance. Our prayers are not only to be focused on ourselves, in addition to praying for our own spiritual battles, we need to be concerned to pray for the spiritual battles that our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. We have to consider that. It's easy for prayers to just be focused on ourselves. 
And we can't know what our brothers and sisters are going through unless we're in community with them. And that's an implication of that. But our prayer should be also for deliverance from Satan. Think back at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 13. If you were to turn there and look, there's usually a footnote at the bottom because he says, but deliver us from evil. But that's also translated, deliver us from the evil one. And, and, I, and I think that that is the best way to translate it. Jesus asked us to pray to be delivered from evil. He wants us to pray for deliverance from the temptations of the evil one, just like Paul is doing in today's passage. It's our tactical advantage. It's our defense. Imagine a special forces group being dropped off maybe in Afghanistan behind enemy lines. They have to have constant communication with their commanding officers. Those, those officers have access to drones, they have access to satellites, and they're able to see what's going on. If those soldiers lost communication with their commanding officer, they would be very, very volatile. They would be isolated, and they would be vulnerable. And likewise, as Christians, if we lose constant contact with God through prayer, the enemy has a tactical advantage. He's hidden from us. We don't know where he is. We don't know how he's moving. We need to be immersed in prayer. So we finally come to the first part of the armor. I know you guys have been waiting for that. The first part of the armor is the belt of truth. And some of you may have older translations that may say to gird up the loins or gird up the belt. And what that means is it was really a sign of being prepared being ready to go, being ready for action. So what, what people would do is both the men and the women would have these long type of skirts. And so what the men would do is they would pull their skirt up and tuck it into their belt so that they could move quickly. I don't know how many women here maybe tried to run with a long uh, dress, but you can't be very agile or athletic. I've not tried it, so I can't speak to that. But that's, that's Paul's point here. It's, it's to be ready, to stand prepared. But he calls this belt the belt of truth. And what Paul means here is that we need to be people who know the truth, people who discern the truth, people who speak the truth. And if we know truth and we speak truthfully, we can better discern when Satan brings untruth. And we can avoid potentially compromising moral situations. Think about the temptation to compromise with your clocking in and clocking out at work. Or maybe to fudge a little bit on your taxes. What about that temptation that you have to, to gossip about a coworker when you found out something potentially damaging about them? If we have integrity and if we speak truth, we can better recognize and speak out against falsehood and deceit and injustice. Closely related to the belt of truth is the breastplate of righteousness. It's true that as Christians, we've received Christ's righteousness, right? He, he lived a perfect life because he knew we could not. He fulfilled all the commands of God's law. And, and by dying, he takes on our sinfulness and gives us his righteousness. Like, that's true, but Paul's main point here is 
you need to be personally righteous. Like, you need to live a holy life. He's calling us here to obedience. If we don't follow God's law and complement his perfect work with godly living, we live gaping holes in our armor. It's much easier for Satan to prey on us when we are morally weak, right? Is that not what we've dealt with? Next in this section, I'm going to skip and I'm going to go to the shield of faith in verse 16. Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. One of the good things about preaching for this passage is I don't really have to think of a lot of good um, metaphors and um, imagery because Paul kind of gives it to me in every aspect of this text. The Roman shield, which Paul is referring to here, was about two and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet tall. So if, if you have seen Gladiator and there's this beginning scene when the Romans are trying to take over this barbarian group, they have these massive shields that they're marching with. And the Roman shield was made of wood, but it also had leather on the outside of it. Because oftentimes enemies would light their arrows on fire and they would shoot them but the leather would extinguish it. The Romans had a thumb up on everyone else. What Paul is saying here is that we need to cling to the faith that we have in Christ so that we can deflect and extinguish the flaming arrows of Satan. But unfortunately, we end up getting caught up in our own battles. We forget to come to the defense of other Christians in the community. When we try to fight our own battles, we're isolated, right? And we can also isolate our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And think about it. When you're fighting, you can only see what's in front of you. You can't see what's behind you. That, that causes us to have a blind spot. And as Christians, if we can fight back to back with each other, we can help defend not only ourselves but each other to defend, um, against the arrows of accusation that Satan flings at us. Again, this, of course, means we have to be in close fellowship with each other. For how else would we know the temptations and the struggles that each other face? And we see Paul's drive for a community-wide battle to fight Satan in his final greeting. Look at verse 21 and 22. Paul does not leave the Ephesian Christians to themselves. Right? He says, I send Tychicus, the beloved brother, for the purpose to tell them everything, to encourage their hearts. Right? Paul, Paul showed this throughout his whole life. But let's think a little bit about the types of arrows that Satan likes to fling at us. He's an archer of accusation. He shoots flaming arrows at us. He wants to make us feel inadequate, he wants to make us feel discouraged. He wants to make us feel ashamed. And he wants us to feel unworthy. He flings arrows at us that name our sin. And he holds them in front of us because he wants to crush our hope in Christ. He whispers a powerful lie in our ears. He says to us, God will never love you if he ever knew everything that you've done. And no one else would ever love you either if they knew what you've done. 
But how do we respond? Some of us, some of us hide. Some of us are crippled in fear. There's a few of us here that maybe try to deflect these arrows of accusation by putting on armor of your own attributes, an armor of your own achievements. But that armor can never defend you when you're confronted with your own shame. We try to will ourselves to victory, but we don't depend on the victory that Christ has won for us. And that's Paul's point of this entire passage. In verse 10, Paul wants us to know that we need to draw on the Lord's strength, not on our own. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He uses three words here for strong and strength and might. And if you were to turn back to Ephesians 1.19, he does the same thing. It's translated a little bit differently. But he uses those same three words because he wants to talk about the great power that God showed in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And he's using these synonyms because he wants to convince us that the greatest power ever to be displayed, the greatest power ever to be shown, is that power of raising Christ from the dead. And that's the power that we can draw on. That's how we can battle against Satan. Because Christ was victorious over Satan, we can be too. We can be courageous because he's been victorious. He's our victorious leader. Well, if, if, if that's true, then the helmet of salvation shows that salvation has been accomplished by Christ on our behalf. And we can only take it up knowing that the saving power of our Lord is our only defense against attacks from the evil one. We can only hold our heads up in confidence knowing that we've been redeemed, knowing that we have received salvation and will one day be perfected when Christ comes again. But we can also fight against the enemy with God's written word, which he calls the sword of the spirit. And the sword is both an offensive and a defensive weapon. God's preserved his word for us, and it has the cutting power to expose sinful hearts and to bring people into relationship with himself. But not only that, we can use scripture against Satan when we're tempted. That's, that's what Jesus did when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Because all of Scripture are the words of Christ, Satan must submit to them. So when we speak God's word, when we have arrows flaming at us, we can be victorious. The last part of the armor I wanted to look at is, are the shoes for our feet. And the Roman soldiers, they didn't have like big old combat boots. They had like a half-length boot, and they had spikes on the bottom. And they served two purposes. The first purpose was it enabled them to stand their ground, kind of like an offensive lineman, like not getting pushed back. But Romans were also really well known for being able to quickly pursue their enemies and catch them and surprise them because they had these comfortable boots that had spikes so they could run very fast over terrains. And as Christians, you know, we've received the gospel of peace. You know, that's what... He talks about here, 
He says that the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So embracing the realities that we've received peace with, with God through Christ's death and peace with each other, that certainly helps us to be able to stand our ground. But I think Paul is getting at the second point of, of the, uh, the boot for the Roman. He's picking up on themes in Isaiah 52, 7, where Isaiah, in prophesying about the Lord's coming salvation in Christ, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul's saying that we have been given shoes of readiness that give us traction, that enable us to pursue and defeat our enemy by preaching the gospel of peace. We can push back against the kingdom of darkness, and the enemy will have no choice but to flee from us. God's kingdom expands as the gospel is spoken, and people come to Christ, and Satan's shrinks. And again, we, we see Paul drawing on this strength in verse 19 and 20. He asked for prayer that he would continue to have boldness to preach the gospel even though he was currently in chains. Despite the brief victory that the world of darkness had over him, he still believed in and he depended on the power of God to push back against Satan, to push back against the fallen leaders of the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel of peace. And friends, the glorious truth in this passage is that the armor that we have is God's armor himself. It's not our own armor. It's his. He shares it with his people in Christ. Christ himself enters the battlefield on our behalf, and he enables us to be able to defeat the enemy. Think about this. Jesus is the truth. He's stronger than the devil's lies. He only spoke truth. There was no deceit found in his mouth, yet he was judged with the wicked. He perfectly obeyed God's law because he knew we could not. And although he had no sin, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our resume of righteousness. He's our only armor against the arrows of accusation that Satan flings at us. God himself is the shield that we can take refuge in. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. And it is by faith that we can flee to him for refuge to get behind his shield. Christ wears righteousness as a breastplate, and he wears a helmet of salvation in the victorious final battle when he will fully and finally defeat Satan and the powers of evil. The battle has been won. We can be encouraged by that. Brothers and sisters, cling to these glorious gospel truths. May they encourage you and equip you when you go, go in battle against the powers of Satan. But remember, we want to do this not only for our own lives, but we want to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to get into your word. God, it's a great task to battle against Satan. Lord, help us to be aware of the foe that we face. But also, Lord, knowing that you, the victory has been won. They had to submit to you. 
Thank you that you um, give us your armor and you equip us. Help us to depend on your grace. Thank you that you plead for our cause. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.